Good morning, good morning. So I, I've realised that as a church, we've, we've been missing something for, for a while, uh, for a while now. And that's a good old Salvation Army story. And uh, just as a bit of background, um, I was brought up in, in the Salvation Army. And uh, actually, my great-great-great-great-grandparents were one of the first officers to be sent out of literally out of a tent. And uh, all the way through from, from them to, to my own parents were Salvation Army officers. So uh, unless something dramatic happens in my life, I think I'm going to be breaking that uh, particular tradition. But the Salvation Army... Uh, when they really started in the mid, uh, mid, eight, uh, mid 19th century, they, they were crazy, literally crazy. They would, they would bung, you know, single, single folks or, and couples onto boats um, to all ends of the earth with the aim to proclaim the glory and the good news of Jesus Christ and plant churches all over the world. And, you know, they had such an, an essence of mission and, uh, you know, proclaiming that news across the world to as many people as they could. One particular couple uh, called Thomas and Adelaide uh, Sutherland, they went to Australia and, to- and Thomas... Uh, was born sort of in the mid mid 1800s, and he was the son of a blacksmith uh, up north uh, somewhere. And he liked he, he he liked to drink. He liked to drink. He would be known a frequent uh, visitor, well known across the the pubs. And he had a nickname, a very original nickname, uh, Drunk Tom was was his that's um, how he was known as uh, in in those in those parts. And he heard one night William Booth's daughter preaching, and he walked into the, uh, to the place where she was preaching, and uh, in that night, in that evening, gave his life to Jesus, gave his life to Christ. And uh, shortly after, he was married, uh, and uh, William Booth and uh, the, the team sent them to Australia. And Thomas's plan, Thomas's tactics in Australia was to go into a particular town, find out who the biggest drunk was, and convert him or her. It was mainly, mainly a guy, but convert the biggest drunk in the village, the biggest drunk in the town. Because in that instance, converting that person was a powerful testimony of how a life could be transformed. And Tom actually got a new nickname in Australia, he was no longer called Drunk Tom. In Australia, his nickname was Glory Tom. Glory Tom. Because all he was known for was preaching about the glory of Jesus and the glory of Father God. And in three years, um, over a dozen churches were planted across Australia. And, and they say four to 6,000 people were saved, starting from uh, Thomas and Adelaide Sutherland. But you can imagine, you know, if, if you can imagine, if you will, that up in, up in heaven, there's, a, there's an angel who we could call the head of HR, the head of recruitment. And I don't think there is, but let's just, let's just, go, along, let's just go along with this. And you can imagine, you know, they're, they're going, they're seeing what William Booth is doing. Oh, they're going to plant some churches in Australia. And God talks to this head of HR angel and says, you know who's, who's going to be doing that? Who's going to be doing that work? Drunk Tom. Drunk Tom from Cumbria is 
going to be planting, going to be transforming that land of Australia for the Salvation Army on the behest of uh, William Booth. Drunk Tom's my guy. He's the guy. And you can hear, you could probably imagine, sort of, if there was this head of HR, head of recruitment, this angel just shaking their head. Drunk Tom. That's who you want. That's who you want. But it shouldn't have come as a surprise. Because God, throughout the Bible, we see these, we could turn them unlikely candidates. Being chosen, being anointed. You know, going all the way back to Abraham. Who's going to be the guy, a father of a nation that, can, that will be countless, more numerous than the, the grains of sand and the stars in the sky? Oh, Abraham, who's at pension age, who hasn't got a son by his wife, Sarah. He's the guy who's going to be the father of this, who's going to be the father of these nations. And how countercultural God is. If we look at Abraham's son, Isaac, he wasn't actually the firstborn. He was the child of a promise. But his firstborn, Abraham's firstborn, was Muhammad. Isaac's firstborn was Esau. But who did, who did God specially anoint? Of course God had a plan for Esau, but God anointed Jacob, the secondborn, to be the father of the Israelite nation. It wasn't Jacob's firstborn, Reuben, that God worked miraculously through and anointed But we read about Joseph becoming the second most powerful man in the uh, civilized world. Even goes, Joseph's, and this is just a a short passage in the Bible, but Joseph's two sons, Manasseh was his eldest, Ephraim was his youngest. And when Jacob went to bless those sons, he blessed and gave the birthright to Ephraim, his youngest. We see the countercultural essence in, in the role of women in the time. That God, how God used people like Tamar and Ruth and, and um, Deborah and Rahab for mighty purposes. When we look about how the Israelites were set out of Egypt, who does God use? An adopted Egyptian prince with so much baggage, with such a complicated history. God used Moses, even with all of that that was behind him, his background and the context and the baggage. He was the one that God used. When we look at the sons of Jesse, all lined up before Samuel, who was going to be the anointed king? We should be getting the picture now. That head of HR angel should know what was coming. It's David, the youngest. When we look at the disciples, who does God use? Fishermen, tradesmen, tax collectors, political activists. God's God's saying something here. And then when we get to a really critical time of the Christian church, who's going to be the guy to proclaim my message to proclaim the gospel of Jesus to the ends of the earth, to the Gentiles? Who's going to be, in terms of the history of the Christian church, one of the most crucial people in proclaiming that message, in planting those churches? Who's it going to be? Well, of course, it's going to be a person who hunted Christians 
Who sent them to their death? Who persecuted them? That was the guy that God chose and God anointed for that critical work. We read in, in Acts 22, verses 3 to, 3 to 5, a bit of an overview of Paul's background, Paul's history. So it's Acts 22, verses 3 to 5. And just before this, he had gone to Jerusalem. Um, his uh, people around him had advised him not to, and he was put under arrest very, you know, after a few days of being in Jerusalem because they saw in Paul, and what they said about him was that they were, he was going around the known world teaching against the rules and the laws of, 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 the, of the Jewish faith. He was inviting Greeks to the temple. And uh, it was only, you know, they were, they were literally killing him. They were in the process, I don't know how, but they were in the process of, of killing him. And a Roman commander came and stopped them. And, and Paul actually persuaded this Roman commander for him to speak to the Jewish crowd that was around him. And this is just briefly what he says. He says, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. I studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison, as the high priest and all the council can themselves testify. I even obtained letters from them to their associates in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. That was the guy that God chose to proclaim his gospel, to plant churches all over the known world. And it begs the question of, of why does God do this? Why had, has God done this for thousands of years and continue to pick what could be termed these unlikely candidates? And of course there's something to be said, massively to be said, that when people see this sort of transformation, when they see someone like Paul doing the, Saul becoming Paul, be doing the things he did, when they see someone like drunk Tom doing the things he did, it's evident, it is obvious that there is something supernatural, something miraculous going on in that person. That it is not their own strength, it's not their own talents or skills as such, but it is God working miraculously through that person. But it's also worth considering the person spec or the job spec the things that we may look for in a person, their background, their experience, their skills and talents, it could be that what we look for and what we, are, what we would consider in terms of human nature is very different to what God looks for and what God seeks out. We talked, I mentioned briefly David, who was to become the king of Israel and God's anointed and chosen one. And people were a bit baffled, I'm sure, about his selection and him being chosen. But Samuel, the prophet Samuel, who anointed David, says that man, humans, 
our nature. We look at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. God looks at the heart. This is a very simple message here of God looking at our heart, of who we truly are. And to be honest, David, David didn't become king because he was the nicest shepherd boy. You know, when we say, oh, God looks at the heart, oh, well, what a kindness, niceness. David was the kindest shepherd boy. That was why God chose him, because he had a nice heart. He had a nice heart. Now, I'm not, I'm not uh, begrudging or disparaging niceness and kindness. We should, of course, seek these things. These are good things to seek for and to, to have in your person. But I don't think when, when God's talking about looking at the heart, that he simply just picks the nicest and kindest people, as, as that's the true attributes of what makes a good heart. God, when God says about looking at the heart and what we can see evidenced in the life of David and of Paul and people throughout the Bible that were anointed and chosen, was firstly a bigness of heart, a big heart. A big heart that had a capacity to not just love tens of people, but to love hundreds, sometimes thousands. To have a, a heart so big, so deep, to be so compassionate that transcends understanding, to meet people where they are because of the immense love and compassion and empathy that these people had, as I said, not just for tens, but for hundreds and for thousands. A bigness of heart that they were able to take on burdens. They were able to take on strains and stresses and weights of the world, of what was being asked of them, that again transcends human strength and human understanding. Because not only did they have a big heart, but those weights, those stresses that were on their shoulders, leading, serving, loving people, they were able to take them and put them in the rightful place on the shoulders of their God. So I think God looks for a big heart, capacity, love, compassion. God also looks for a boldness of heart to know that in all things God is in control. It was a bold heart that David was able to shout in the face of Goliath and tell him that it was not by sword, not by strength, but by the Lord's spirit that Goliath was going to be brought down. It was a boldness of heart to know that God is the one who is on our side, that walks before us and after us and around us. That in every situation, in every circumstance, we can shout to our Goliaths, to our strongholds, our God is bigger, our God is stronger, our God will meet my and our every need. And also, what these guys showed was a believing heart, a believing heart that knew whatever came their way, whatever adulation, whatever praise, whatever power, whatever authority, whatever success, they had a believing heart that their God was more important. Their God was central. 
Their God was bigger and better and more valuable than anything that was given to them for all the praise, all the riches, all the followers in the world. They believed 100% that their God was more valuable and that their God was needed to keep his rightful place in their lives. These are some of the attributes that we see over many, many years of people in the Bible throughout church history demonstrating in their heart a big heart, a bold heart, and a believing heart. And when we look then back at Saul, who became Paul, God must have seen some of that in him. We can sometimes use the word conversion when we talk about Saul, that on the road to Damascus, Saul converted. But it's, it, it's not really what happened. One, this conversion that some people might think that he converted from Judaism to Christianity. Well, firstly, those two sort of definitions and, uh, and ways of thinking weren't even embedded in that time. We can understandably think, well, there was a conversion between this evil Darth Vader type character into, and we can continue the Star Wars analogy, into a, a Luke Skywalker Christian warrior. But if we take a step back and consider what were Saul's motives, the things Saul did that we know about in the Bible were horrible, were abhorrent, were evil in terms of his persecution, the way that he went about persecuting men, women, families to their deaths. But why did he do what he did? Paul, Saul, who became Paul, Saul was driven, was driven by zeal. He was zealous. We know that many, many times. His zealous was without parallel. Saul was driven by reconciliation and restoration. Saul lived at a time where the Israelite nation, his Jewish people, were maybe not geographically exiled, but there was a, there was, there was a known and there was a spoken separation between them and God. He seeked beyond all else, and what drove him beyond all else was bringing his God back to his people and for God to be put in his rightful place. He was driven by that reconciliation and he was driven to see the physical temple restored to its rightful place. Paul uh, Saul was driven by restoration and reconciliation. And what happened on Damascus, on that road? What happened? No one really knows exactly. Tom Wright, N.T. Wright, um, who's, a, who's a, a minister, a scholar, an author, probably one of the foremost um, uh, sort of sources of information and thinkers around the life of Paul. He, he's of an opinion, and he proposes this quite interesting chain of events. That on the road to Damascus, 
Saul was likely to have been meditating. And there was, an, there was a very common, a very traditional meditation that Jewish men like Saul would have done. And it was going back to the time of the prophet Ezekiel, who had a vision of this, this very weird vision of these wheels turning, and on top of, this, off top of these wheels were some very interestingly constructed beasts. And on top of the beasts was a throne. And on the throne was some indescribable figure. Now, what Jewish men at that time, like Saul, would have done is they would have meditated a particular phrase, and in their mind's eye, they would have, they would have looked firstly at the bottom at these turning wheels. And as they meditated, as they chanted, as they uh, repeated these particular prayers and phrases, in their mind's eye, they would have gone from the wheels, they would have started to look up at the beasts, they would have started to look up at the foot of the throne, started to go up, gaze in their eyes, either upwards, towards the figure of the throne. And Tom Wright proposes that maybe, just perhaps, as Paul and Saul was going through that meditative process, through the wheels, through the beasts, through the throne, he gazes ever upwards and sees the face of Jesus. Regardless of how it happened, on that road to Damascus, Saul met and saw the face of Jesus. And it was completely life-changing for Saul. Because he realised that his deepest desire to serve, to bring reconciliation and restoration, was found in that man, was found in that life, was found in that sacrifice. The realisation that all Saul had done in the previous years had been misdirected. He'd been doing it in the wrong way. He'd been going after it in a completely the wrong way. And the restoration and the reconciliation that he was after was found in the face of Jesus. And it was a massive thing for Saul because that was his anchor. That was his hope. You know, if Saul didn't question the things he did, the persecution, the fendettas, the hunting, if he didn't question those things, then he would have been a psychopath. He must have reconciled. The things he was doing was because of that greater cause to bring restoration to the Israelite nation. And then to realise that it had all been misdirected and incorrect. And his hope that the, the restoration he seeked was going to come by the physical restoration of the temple and, and, and the Israelite nation being in its rightful place and God residing back in the Holy of Holies, that hope that he had hung on to for so many years, again, had been misplaced. But there's two things here just to end with. God wanted Saul. God wanted Saul. We can sometimes uh, maybe get into an understanding of thinking... God transforms people, but he doesn't completely shred them away and start again. As if to say, the person that you were, I'm going to completely change 100% because I'm going to have a completely different person. 
Of course, in one sense, there is a transformation of the heart and the spirit that goes on. But there was stuff in Saul that God saw that he wanted. God's, uh, Saul's passion and seal. The way that he approached problems. His commitment, his relentlessness. The way that he, he went about things. God doesn't want to kind of completely rip you out. The way that you think, the things you're passionate about, the thing, your, your, um, your, your ability to kind of get things done, to approach things in, the be- in, in, in quite a good way. There are things in you that God sees and likes and loves and wants to see more of. And doesn't want to rip them out. The way that you care for people. The way that you're compassionate. The way that you come alongside people. Your skills. Your talents. God doesn't want to necessarily just rip them out and shred them. He just wants to direct them for his glory. He wants them to direct them for a purpose that will bring true restoration and reconciliation. And also, I asked a question around anchor and hope. uh, Saul's anchor and hope was to see that physical temple, to see that nation restored and reconciled to God. And and what is your anchor? What is it that you hold on to? it, It may be a person, it may be a group of people, it may be a coping mechanism, an addiction, perhaps that is your anchor, that you hold tight and steadfast and say, without this, without this person, without this group, without this, uh, without this um, coping mechanism, I couldn't get through the day, I couldn't get through life. What is your anchor? And what is your hope? What do you daydream about? If your mind goes off in the day, what, where does it go? What's your hope for your life, for your family? To be honest, the gospel message and the message that Jesus says is quite simple. If it's not me, if it's not Jesus, then you're going to come up and come against sadness and disappointment. Jesus is the true anchor. Jesus is the true hope. Everything else for our best endeavours and people's best intents will let you down. We'll not give you exactly what you're needing. We'll not satisfy your every need. It's a simple message. Jesus, Jesus is the true anchor. Jesus is our true hope. On the road to Damascus, that's ultimately what Saul found out. His anchor is hope, and it's quite a traumatic experience. It's it's not a small thing. It wasn't for Saul, and it's not for us who go through this. To have your coping mechanism, your anchor, stripped away. Your hope, what you had for hope for your life, stripped away. It's not easy. It's not an easy thing to happen and to do. But if it's not Jesus, 
It needs to happen. He loves you so much. He loves you so much. There's an old song that just says, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain and he washed it white as snow. He does, a job, he does the job properly. He does the job properly. He doesn't do it half-heartedly. He doesn't leave a little bit of stain, a little bit of dirt on there. He does the job once and he does it properly. Changing your heart. Taking away those things that should not be your anchor. Replacing those things that shouldn't be there for your hope. Jesus does it properly. He does it once and he does it properly. 